Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here today, and we're grateful for you coming today. And I just want to commend Ted for doing such a great job this morning and all of the announcements and and, uh, welcoming everybody. You know, he's doing pretty good for somebody that's having a birthday today. So um, y'all make sure... Y'all make sure that y'all wish him a happy 55th birthday today. He'll be appreciative (laughs) of that. If you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I want to admit I had another plan in place and a different direction that I intended to go this week, but the Lord drew me to this chapter of Luke's Gospel. And I could not shake the urgency of the message that is conveyed in it. So as I have learned through the years, when, when an urgent message that is urged on by the Lord uh, is given to me, then that as a preacher, I, I have to preach it with urgency. And that's exactly what I intend to do this morning. We're going to focus the majority of our discussion on what Luke tells us beginning in verse 16 However, I believe that it is of tremendous value and importance if we understand the context of what we read there, beginning in verse 16. So I want to back up and just sort of set the stage for you that Luke does for us in the first 15 verses of this chapter. The opening verse of Luke chapter 14 tells us something important. Notice it with me. It says, now it happened as Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. It's that last phrase there that I want you to note. They watched him, Jesus, they watched him closely. What sticks out to me based upon what Luke tells us there is that there was an air of suspicion that floated in behind this meal that Jesus was eating. He is being surveilled. He is being watched. But then notice also with me, based upon what Luke writes, that we come to recognize that within this this bunch who is surveilling Jesus, there is also an air of superiority. And we know this because of what Jesus does next. Down in verses 7 through 11, he heals a man of dropsy in the the first part of this, this chapter. And they're watching him because he's doing this on the Sabbath. And he asks a question and they couldn't say anything. So this group that's surveilling Jesus, he has effectively silenced them. And then in verses 7 through 11, he tells them a parable about folks who are maneuvering for the best and the most honorable seats at a wedding feast. Now, I doubt Jesus ever wasted a good illustration. My guess is is that every time he told one and every time he used one, he he was pointing at something that needed to be addressed. And so I would imagine that the exact same thing that he describes in this parable was going on at this dinner party that he's attending, that, that there was a lot of jockeying for position, Going on, everybody attempting to try to get to the most honorable seat. These were a bunch of religious leaders and religious rulers. I've seen it myself. It happens quite often. That's exactly what was occurring here at this this table. Then notice what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you've got plenty of time this afternoon, go and chase that reference down and see how many times you see that theme come up throughout Scripture. It's almost from the first page to the very last page. 
This, of course, as a repeated and recurring theme throughout Scripture, what I just want you to notice is, is that this dinner party of all this religious elite folks who had gathered together, there is an air of suspicion and there's also an air of superiority. That's what I want you to see. But there's one more area that I want to draw your attention to briefly based upon what we read in verses 12 and 14. You see, there was also an air of self-interest going on there. Jesus turned to the man who had invited him to this party, to this dinner, and he said to that man, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers or your relatives nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. No, but when you, you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. From what Jesus says here, we, we realize that evidently everyone at this party knew one another. In fact, we get the impression that these same folks kind of attended the same parties. They just rotated around, each one giving it because the other one had given it before, and they had to invite them. And so you know how that goes. You invited me, so now I've got to invite you back. In fact, I think you can even make the application that the man who invited all these folks to this dinner either was doing it as a repayment or likely there was someone else at this dinner who was going to throw a swanky event later, and he wanted to get an invitation to that one. Sort of a quid pro quo kind of thing. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. This dinner party was not organized out of sheer kindness and generosity. It was done so that the host could eventually be invited to some, something later. And what we see is that an, an era of self-interest and even self-centeredness, we might say, lurks behind everything taking place here. So to summarize, the setting of this passage is the gathering of a bunch of self-righteous, suspicious religious leaders who had the superiority complex, who made it their practice to serve themselves by swapping favors with one another. And right there, in the middle of all of that, is Jesus. The one who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for me. Now, I imagine that when Jesus looked at the host of the party and said, quit inviting these people and invite all the lame and the maimed and the blind who can't repay you, I imagine at that point you could have heard a pin drop in that room. You ever been in one of those situations that everything just got socially awkward real quick? I mean, the room could just be warm and fuzzy and nice and everything, and all of a sudden it got bitterly cold. Have you ever been in that scenario before? I've been there before, and I'm going to tell you what my initial response is. It's just because of the way I'm wired. I want to come up with, to say something. I, I, I want to I diffuse the tenseness that's in the room. I want to find something funny to say. I want to get ground common among us so that we can all find our way back to the center of the room. I think that's what happens in verse 15. Because in verse 15, there's a guy, doesn't tell us who he is. He's trying to bring everything back to the center. He says, blessed is he who shall eat of the bread of the kingdom of God. He, he, he comes out with that. Now, now listen, what the man said was true, right? That, that's a true statement. In fact, I believe everybody in the room could have, could have agreed, even Jesus, and said, that's 100% true. Blessed are those who will eat of the bread in the kingdom of God. 
What he quoted was, was likely a proverb or a common saying that was perhaps popular at dinner parties. The only question is, who will those people be? Who will those people be that eat bread in the kingdom of God? Well, certainly everyone at this dinner party that night, I guarantee you, they would have assumed that they would be there. After all, they were respectable. They were religious. They, they had earned the right to be there. Surely they would eat bread in the kingdom of God. Honestly, that is an assumption that many people make today as well. Many just assume that they will go to heaven one day because, well, they're not as bad as some people are. They live, they're, they're, they live a fairly respectable life. Even religious to some degree. They do enough good things that they think God's going to notice that and credit those good things to their account. And they honestly believe that they're going to have more credits than they are going to have deficits at the end. And so surely they're going to be there. That was the prevailing thought at this dinner party as well. And it's the prevailing thought among our, many of our world today. But Jesus says something different. And all of that, it was background. And all of that set up the passage that I think starts right there. In verse 16, so with your Bibles open, would you read it with me? We hear the word of God, and it says, Then Jesus said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. Still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this day that you have given to us. And it is cold outside, but Lord, we're grateful that we're warm in here, and we're grateful for our Bibles that are in front of us, and we're grateful for the word of God that we can read. Now I pray that that word would penetrate our hearts, that it would expose us, that your Holy Spirit would work a great work in each and every one of us in this room. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. You'll notice on the outline that I've given you there that should be in your bulletin that um, I've arranged things just a little differently than normal today. 
Uh, I'm providing you with a basic outline of this parable that will sort of show you the structure of it and allow us to, to kind of discuss its historical and social details to some degree. And, but then you'll also notice that once we've observed all of those details and discussed them, I've given you some basic points of application uh, that I believe naturally flow out of this passage. And so that's how we're going to do things today. We're going to talk about the outline, we're going to talk about the substance of the parable, and then we're going to look specifically at the application of what we drive from that. So the outline is going to go this way. The first thing I want you to note, verses 16 and 17, we see a gracious invitation. There is a gracious invitation that is there. In, in that culture, in that first century culture, invitations to big events such as the one described here in this parable really occurred in two stages. Um, the first invitation went out and announced the date of the party and gave everyone a chance to RSVP, we might say, to the party that was coming up. And, and so they would have been familiar with, with the date and, and when that party was going to be available. And then once everything was ready, once all of the preparations for that dinner had been uh, secured and, and, and the meat had been prepared and everything had was come, then a second invitation went out that actually invited the people who had said they would come to come, that everything was ready. That second invitation is what's in view here in verses 16 and 17. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and then sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. Now, we need to recognize that based upon the context that we've already discussed in the first 16 verses of this chapter, that there's more going on here in this parable than just a great supper or a great banquet. There's more going on here. If Jesus is going to tell this, this story, there's, there's something major that he's talking about. And, and the fact that, that Jesus told this parable in response to this man's exclamation, blessed is he who shall eat of the bread of the kingdom of God. The fact that he told it in response to that tells us that he's opening our eyes to something of major importance, something that deals with the kingdom of God. Something far greater than just a regular meal. In fact, Philip Graham Ryken has, has written this. He says, the, this parable was really about God's plan of salvation and the coming of Christ. So in this parable, the man who's hosting this banquet represents God, and the banquet represents the kingdom. It's the greatest feast that any king has ever set before any guest. That's really what this, this parable is about. So with that in mind, consider the fact that when Jesus says that this man invited these people to a great supper, that tells us that this was not going to be some small little quaint affair where, you know, 10 or 12 people are gathered together. No, 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 no. This was, this was a supper that required a tremendous amount of effort. It was truly a great supper. But it also would have been a great honor to be invited and to attend this great supper. Notice that there were many who were invited. This was a great supper that would have had been a great honor to attend. And the host, when he invited many, the many who they talk about here, many scholars say this, was, this identified the people of Israel to whom God had sent all the prophets of the Old Testament who had, who had said, look, the kingdom of God is coming. And their prophetic function was to send out a, an invitation. But now, now it was time for the second invitation to go out. Because Jesus was announcing 
that the kingdom had come. You see, with Christ's arrival, the inauguration of the kingdom was now. And the time for the great banquet had arrived and Jesus himself was offering this gracious invitation. Come, for all things are now ready. There are three key words there that I want to alert you to. The, the, the words all, now, and come. Warren Wiersbe, he, he has written that the importance of the word all lies in its reminder that God has done all that is needed to be done to save lost sinners. Christ finished the work of redemption on the cross. The table is spread with all that we need. Forgiveness and cleansing and peace and joy and much more. Furthermore, all that we need is ready now. As Wearsby writes, he says, the sign outside the door of the dining hall reads, no waiting. It's all ready now. So the invitation is to come. Come and get it. As we noted from our passage last week in Revelation 22, if you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. If you want salvation and eternal life, come. It is a great and a gracious invitation of the gospel. Now, given all those facts concerning this gracious invitation, we can understand why it was so shocking to hear what happened next. Notice the next heading on your outline there. In verses 18 through 20, we read of a rude rejection. A rude rejection. Jesus says in verse 18, he says, but they all with one accord, notice that, they all with one accord began to make excuses. In other words, we read of these three individuals who made excuses for why they could not attend. And it seems as though they had conspired together to not go to this great supper that the man gave. Remember, they all knew this supper was coming. The word had gone out well in advance. But now they beg off and they say they cannot come. They were no-shows to the party. Jesus tells us three different excuses were offered. The first man said that he had bought a piece of property and needed to go see it. The second man said that, that his, his excuse wasn't much better. He'd bought five yoke of oxen and needed to go prove them. He needed to go see if they worked. The third man tried a different tact. He said, um, I got married. <laughs> the reality is all of those excuses are transparently dishonest. Had the first man actually bought a piece of property that he had never laid eyes on before? And even if he had, did he have to go on that particular day to look at it? The second man bought five yoke of oxen. Now, I don't know anything about oxen. I don't know anything about plowing, plowing the ground, but I'm pretty sure you can't use but one yoke at a time. So this was a, this was a rich man who had laborers who did the plowing for him, and he's buying five yoke of oxen. He hadn't, did, was he going to be the one that actually proved them and make sure that they worked? Somebody said it was like buying five cars that you'd never even test driven. And then the third man, his excuse was hardly honest because surely he's a newlywed. Surely it would have been okay for him to bring his wife to the party. The reality is when you, when you look past the surface, you recognize that the excuses that were offered, there's no real substance underneath them. They were just simply rude rejections of the host 
who had graciously invited them to the party. And the men simply did not want to attend. In the words of Riken, he says this, such an intentional insult could only mean that the invited guests had the utmost disdain for their would-be host. In fact, he goes on and writes this, in some parts of the Middle East, such a rude refusal virtually amounted to a declaration of war. So, as we have noted, you have a gracious invitation followed by a rude rejection, which leads us to note how Jesus concluded this parable. He concludes it in the following verses, 21 through 24, with a broader appeal. A broader appeal. Notice that in light of the fact that the great supper was prepared and ready, the host became angry that his invitation had been rejected. So, so he said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. You can't miss the fact that Jesus is using the exact same description and the exact same words that he used back in verse 13 when he pointed his finger in the face of the man who had given the party that he was attending, that that's who he should have invited to his party. But understand this, to the Pharisees, the people who were, were like that, the people who were, who were poor and maimed and lamed and blind, the Pharisees tended to look, up, look down upon such folks as being resting under the judgment of God. In fact, they, des, they despise such people and they deem them to be unworthy to be able to observe the traditional laws of ritual purity. But God sees things differently. In Jesus' parable, those who had no place at the ruler of the Pharisees' table were the same ones that were invited to the great supper of the kingdom of God. And evidently, there were many who responded to the servant's invitation. But even so, according to verse 22, notice there was still room for more. So the master said to the servant, go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. A number of sources that I read consulted that the term highways and, 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 and hedges or byways that we might see, those were words that referred to not only the thoroughfares, the major roads, but also those little back roads, those little dirt roads, those little small country lanes. In other words, this servant is told, don't discriminate. You go out wherever you find somebody. And it doesn't matter who you find. Surely out there on some of those major thoroughfares, there were going to be more than just Jews traveling between cities. And in those backward roads, there's going to be folks that didn't want to be seen by the people on the main thoroughfares. They were hiding. The master of the house says, you go out and you take this invitation to any and to all that you find. Now, we know that according to the book of Acts, that's precisely what happened with the gospel message? You remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, in Samaria and the end of the earth. And the book of Acts tells us how that, how that all occurred. Certainly the ever-widening circle of the proclamation of the gospel is foretold right here in this parable in Luke 14. What I want to draw your attention to, though, is the word compel that is used there in verse 23. The Greek word that is translated compel is a very strong one. It can refer, to, it can refer and be used 
rightly so, in the event of forcing someone to do something. But it also has the understanding of using friendly pressure, of of constraining someone, using all necessary means to turn someone from their reluctance to accept the invitation and come to the party. Now, just imagine for a second that you're one of those people that are out there on one of those byways. You're actually trying to duck folks. You really don't want to be in the middle of the mix. Maybe you've got things that you don't really want people to to call out about you. But all of a sudden, here comes someone and he's inviting you to a party. What do you think your initial response is going to be? Thanks, but no thanks. Keep your distance. Six feet, please. Make sure you stay away. You know... You don't know this guy who's inviting you. Not only that, you don't know the man who's hosting the party. You've never had any interaction with him. All you've got is the word of the man who's coming to invite you to the party. What is going to be your initial response? Thanks, but no thanks. The master of the house knew that. He understands that. And so we see that he says, I want, you to use, I want you to compel them. I want you to let them know that, that they have to come in. So just think about this for a moment. It's important. There's a gracious invitation that has gone out, that has been rudely rejected, but now has been given a broader appeal. And what we see is that there is both judgment and there is grace in this parable. The judgment shows up in verse 24. Notice it. The master says this, for I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Those who refused and made those excuses earlier, they're not coming. Those who who decided that there were other things more important than me and the party that I'm throwing, they're not coming. There's There's the judgment. On the other hand, there is great grace here because recognize that God's invitation to salvation is not just for religious insiders. It is for the poor and the broken down sinners who had never been religious at all. In fact, in the parable, this servant, he he goes to any and all that he can find. In fact, many dubious characters lurking in the dark. Now, that's the outline of the parable. That's something you can go back and chew on and you can probably get a lot more marrow out of that bone and I encourage you to do so. It gives the basic details of the story. So what are we to learn from it, though? I want us to spend the balance of our time this morning thinking about, so what can we draw from it? What's important that we need to know? What's the application? Well, I've listed four for you there. And the first one that I really want you to focus in on is this. Familiarity is not faith. Familiarity is not faith. Through his parable, Jesus is clearly issuing a warning. We cannot miss it. It's a warning that goes out to the religious. Who's at this party with him? All of those Pharisees who loved to espouse all the things that they knew. They were familiar with Christ. They were surveilling him. They were familiar with, well, they were familiar with all the law of the Old Testament. They had committed tremendous amounts of it to memory. And what we have to recognize is is that familiarity is not faith. Jesus tells us that we should not confuse our familiarity with the things of Christ. 
Our familiarity with the things that go on in church, be it this church or some other church, we must not, we must not just confuse ourselves that because we know a lot of the language and the lingo that is tossed around inside church. Just because we are familiar with the things that Jesus said does not mean that we have a genuine faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again for our salvation. We may be familiar, but brothers and sisters, let me say to you, familiarity is not faith. As I said, these these Pharisees knew all kinds of things. They were meticulous in their practice of their religion. But in all of their familiarity with Scripture, in all their familiarity with the prophets who came before them and told them of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, right there sitting among them was the Messiah, God's own son. And how did they treat him? With an air of suspicion, an air of superiority, and an air of self-interest. Listen, familiarity and faith are not the same thing. Knowing things about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Being familiar with what the Scripture says about Christ is not the same as placing your faith, your full confidence in the things that Christ has done. Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2 verse 8 that we are saved by grace through faith, not through familiarity. If your confidence is that you'll one day feast at the table of God because you came to church and you have lived a respectable and religious life and that in some way you will earn the right to be granted access to the great supper God is preparing, then you had better heed the warning that is here because familiarity is not faith. You must accept the invitation to come to Jesus. Notice the next point of application that comes from this parable. It's this. Excuses are inexcusable. Excuses are inexcusable. Jesus bids you to come to this supper. As I mentioned, all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, all who long to be satisfied are invited. But you must come. You must respond to the invitation of Christ. What that means is that there is no acceptable excuse for refusing his invitation. All excuses are totally inexcusable. The reason that is the case is because our excuses reveal our priorities. You remember it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The sad reality is, is that we often give first-rate loyalties to third-rate causes. Warren Wiersbe, he notes that The men in this parable did not reject the invitation because they were involved in bad activities. It wasn't bad things they were doing. They just simply rejected the best by settling for the second best. He goes on to write this. Most of the people who reject God's gracious invitation today are not involved in gross iniquities. They are just too involved in the everyday affairs of life and too busy to think seriously about what they are doing. And I want you to know how absolutely dangerous that is. It's dangerous. 
Because when you are so committed to a pleasurable and a profitable way of life that you refuse the invitation to come to the greatest feast in all the universe? Well, such a response exposes the fact that you do not truly know and understand your own deep need of Christ. And you do not realize all that you are missing. And furthermore, it exposes that that you have no respect for the one who invites you. In his commentary on this passage, J.C. Ryle writes that it is a procrastinating, excuse-making spirit which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. He then issues this warning. He says, let the words of our Lord on this subject sink down into our hearts. Infidelity and immorality no doubt slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. No excuse can justify a person in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. Excuses are inexcusable. You must accept the invitation and come to Jesus. Now, with that being understood, then what are we to have? What what are those of us who have come to Christ? Is there something here for us? Absolutely, there is. Notice the third point that I want you to see. The third application is this. If persuaded, be persuasive. If persuaded, be persuasive. I mentioned that word compel earlier in verse 23, and I mentioned the scenario about going out to the highways and hedges and finding those people who are naturally going to be resistant to the invitation to come because they don't know the master. Can he even cook? Is there any reason for us to come? Why would we leave where we are and go there? And then I want you to recognize, though, that this word compel is used. It stresses the importance of the invitation. It stresses the generosity of the invitation. It stresses the graciousness of the invitation and the necessity of the invitation. All of that is is underneath that heading of what it means to compel someone. Brothers and sisters, who better to take this invitation to a lost and a dying world around us than those of us who have been blessed to taste of the good things that God has offered us and benefited from his kindness? That's why Jesus commanded us in Matthew chapter 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatsoever he has commanded us. Listen, the message of the gospel is not just another cool story. It's not just a quaint little tale about a man who did some good things and said some good stuff 2,000 years ago. No, in Jesus there is life. And there is eternal life. In him is forgiveness of sins. In him there is redemption and there is reconciliation. In him there is salvation and there is hope. And if through him you have been gifted with eternal life, then who are you telling about it? And if you're not, then why not? Penn Gillette, who you might know to be the verbal half of the magic duo Penn and Teller, He is a self-avowed atheist, by the way. Makes no bones about it. He was witnessed to one time back in 2016 at one of his shows. Someone came up and gave him a Bible, and in it was written all the name, all of the ways that that he could get in touch with him and talk to him about it later. And he shared with him, shared with with Penn Jillette, a clear, unvarnished version of the gospel. 
Here, you might expect from, from a self-avowed atheist that he would be upset about that. In fact, listen to what he did say. He says this to every believer in Christ. Pendulet says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people are going to be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling others about it because that would make it socially awkward for you, he says, then just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? Brothers and sisters, if you have been persuaded by the good news of Jesus Christ, then you of all people need to be persuasive in telling others about that good news. Those who have answered the call to come must also go out and compel others to come as well. You have to take the invitation of the gospel of Jesus to others. This is an urgent message and we must use all means possible to wake up sinners so that they will turn from their sin and come to Christ. And that leads me to the fourth point of application. The unworthy are welcomed and the unacceptable are accepted. The unworthy are welcomed and the unacceptable are accepted. I want you to note one key element in this parable depicting this kingdom of the banquet the people who finally attend the party seem out of place, don't they? They're not the ones that belong there. They were not the people that you would expect to see attending such a party. But our Lord was teaching through this parable that that was his invitation. It was to the unworthy so that they would be welcomed. It was to the unacceptable and that they would be accepted if they would respond to him. God does not insist that you first become religious or respectable or that you earn the right to come to his supper. The reality is you could never do any of those things to begin with. Rather, his supper is for those who recognize their poverty and who realize that they could never earn an invitation, but that it only comes by the grace of God. Are you unworthy? Yes, you are. Are you unacceptable on your own? Yes, you are. But Christ bids you to come. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come all you who are thirsty. Without, come, come to the water of life. Come and buy milk and wine without the thought of Christ. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy in the Lord. As this passage makes plain, come for all things are now ready. That is what leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Those who are self-assured and preoccupied with their own lives will miss out on God's great banquet. Those who recognize their own inadequacies and unworthiness and accept God's gracious invitation will feast in his kingdom forever. Have you accepted his invitation? Have you come to Jesus? Have you heeded the warning that is in this passage? There is an urgent message here. Verse 22 makes it clear. There is still room for you. There is room because today is a day of grace. And the gospel message continues to go out. And if you're here this morning, let me just encourage you. Do not come up with another inexcusable excuse. 
Don't offer one more reason to God why you can't come to him. Don't, don't disrespect the one who sent his one and only son to this world to do everything that you needed so that you could come to Christ. He came, he lived a perfect, sinless, holy life that none of us could ever live. And for that, they crucified him on a Roman cross and lifted him up from the earth. And the Bible says that all who will look to him will be saved. And he lifted up on that cross and he died there for your sins and for my sins. And they took him down from that cross and they put him in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, God, he rose from the dead. And he continues to call all men and all women and all boys and all girls everywhere, come to me for all that was necessary has been done. Come, come, come. It is an urgent message that the Lord urged upon me. And I'm preaching it with urgency this morning. Come. Let's pray. Father, these are your words, they're not mine. This is your salvation to offer. I'm simply the messenger who invites those who are here to now, I ask that the work of your Holy Spirit would do exactly what you desire in the hearts and lives of those who are here. May your message not meet with resistance, but with humility. May it not be met with suspicion, but with faith. Do not allow familiarity to come in between that which should be, and that is true faith in you. Thank you for the message and thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.